As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief. This is FP Live. Welcome to the show. You might sometimes hear Russia's war in Ukraine described as a stalemate. Loyal followers of this program will know that that's not quite right. War is different than chess. Unlike stalemates in chess, which are final, the battle in Ukraine is very much live. There are constant ebbs and flows, and there aren't just two players, there are many. In general, in this war, Ukraine has seemed to first weather the storm and then find the right moment to strike back. That moment, we hear, is coming up again soon, a likely spring offensive by Kyiv. But despite a surge in support from the West this year, Ukraine still says it needs more long-range missiles and fighter jets, attackums, and much else. It's a fraught debate. How much should Washington do? Is incremental support the way to go? Or should it just go all in? And how much does the answer to that question determine whether Ukraine's spring offensive works out? How do we even define success? So many questions, and I have the perfect guest to guide us through them. James Stavridis is a retired four-star U.S. Navy Admiral and NATO's Supreme Allied Commander. He also served as Dean of the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University for five years. He's currently a Managing Director at the Carlisle Group. As always, FP subscribers get to send in their questions. As you know, I sometimes ask them on your behalf. If you would like to do that too, subscribe now. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. You can also watch these interviews live in video if you go to foreignpolicy.com slash live. For now, in audio, since you're here, here is Admiral James DeVritis. Admiral, great to have you on. Thanks, Ravi. So you're on the record mm-hmm. as saying it is past time that we throw in everything, including the kitchen sink in our aid package for Ukraine. So what exactly is the kitchen sink? Yeah, I'll put uh, three specifics in the sink, if I can, uh, before we throw it to our Ukrainian colleagues. Uh, number one on my list, and I think probably pretty close to number one on the list for our Ukrainian partners are longer range surface to surface missiles. Um, these are typically known as ATACMs, and uh, they're a follow on to the HIMARS, which have been extremely lethal at doing one specific thing disrupting the Russian logistics wellheads. And that's where Russia has been broken again and again in this conflict. So number one, ATACMS. Number two, you mentioned it in the intro, fighter aircraft. Um, Look, I get the reticence about, gosh, perhaps this would be provocative. Could the Ukrainians use them to attack Russia proper? I think those are concerns that are worth airing. But we're at the point in this conflict where 
the idea of provoking Russia somehow um, strikes me as fatuous. Putin's invaded. He's committed war crimes. He's not going to change course simply because we provide the Ukrainians some specific tool. And in terms of restricting the Ukrainians from using them over Russia, believe me, if we said to the Ukrainians the first time you use a U.S. supplied fighter over Russia proper, the Rodina, the motherland, all of those airplanes are going home. That's mm. a pretty high bar. So I'm confident we can overcome both those arguments. And so what fighter aircraft? I think most quickly, and it's happening now, MiG-29s coming from our Polish friends. Secondly, I'd say the F-16. It's a multi-role fighter. It's not a terribly complicated aircraft. And, you know, it's not like we're trying to train you, Ravi, to suddenly learn how to fly an F-16. The people we're going to train are quite skilled fighter pilots. They've been flying MiG-29s, for example, and we can train them pretty quickly. I'd say six to eight weeks, they could be up in that jet. It would have a lot of impact. So number two, fighter aircraft. And then number three, you know, the Admiral's going to say this, but I think longer range cruise missiles that could go after the Black Sea Fleet. If you think back about 10 months ago when the flagship, the Moskva, was sunk and it's now in the bottom of the Black Sea, that was a pretty striking moment. I think the idea of reaching out and touching that Black Sea Fleet would make some sense here. So those would be three items I would place carefully in the kitchen sink before I threw it at the Ukrainians. Mm, that's very good and detailed. And I, I think I speak for everyone listening in that uh, I'm grateful and everyone's grateful you're not training me um, <laughs> rather than uh, people with much, much more experience. But, you know, on the points you raise, uh, the immediate counter that often comes from diplomats in the West, but also um, in other countries is about the, the chances of escalation, especially of the nuclear variety. Mm. How do you think through the risk-reward ratio on that? And have you seen any shifts in that ratio of the last few months? Yeah. I always try and put a book over my shoulder when I do an interview. You'll see behind me, August 1914 by Solzhenitsyn. It's a Pretty good reminder, and we should all be reminded that events can escalate dramatically. So yes, we should be concerned. On the other hand, and I raised this earlier when I talked a moment ago about should we be concerned about provoking Russia? I, I'm not seeing the argument, um, given that Putin has tripled down on everything at this point. What, what additional things are he going to do uh, if we take these kind of measures? Um, he's already essentially mobilized his society as best he can. Um, he's almost exhausted his capital military stocks. He's trying mightily to do everything he can to circumvent sanctions. Um, again, I don't see the risk here. And I know what you're going to say next, which is, Admiral, that makes sense. But what about nuclear weapons? And here, again, it's a conversation we must have. We have to take it seriously. Putin has now, by my count, rattled the nuclear saber over half a dozen times, maybe a dozen, depending on how you 
score various pronouncement he makes. Most recently, he's talked about moving nuclear weapons to Belarus. It's a factor, but I don't think he will use nuclear weapons for essentially two reasons. Let's start with strategic. Look, I despise Vladimir Putin. I've got 50 medals, 28 from foreign countries. The decoration I'm proudest of is that I'm sanctioned by the Kremlin. Hmm. And my point is, as much as I despise Vladimir Putin, I will give him credit for this. He loves his country. He loves Russia. He's not going to reach for the lever to the nuclear apocalypse and launch a strategic nuclear strike. Not going to happen, my view. Now, could he use a tactical nuclear weapon? He could, but I think there are two factors that make it unlikely he will. One is tactical and one is a, a strategic choice. The tactical reason is it wouldn't do him much good. This is a 600-mile front. Unless he wants to drop 20 nuclear weapons, um, it's not going to have the kind of impact because the Ukrainians are not concentrated in ways that would make this very effective. So in terms of military utility, a tactical nuke does not get him much. And then secondly, vastly more importantly, he knows if he used a tactical nuclear weapon, that big swing vote, the global South is mm. gone. That's the swing vote. That's Nigeria, South Africa, Brazil, Pakistan, India, probably China when you really think about it. That middle tranche, that swing vote is gone the day Putin uses a nuclear weapon, in my view. And I, I don't know this, but I would guess top of President Xi's talking points in his last visit to Putin was, you know... We'll do what we can to help you. Really appreciate the 40% discount on the oil and gas. Keep that coming. But his number one practical talking point to Putin, don't use a nuclear weapon. Indeed. And, you know, from conversations I've had as well with officials in the Global South, um, they have told me that that is a message they are all communicating uh, to Russia in some shape or form. Uh, and I imagine that that will affect Putin's thinking as well. Now, You've laid out very clearly the case for the kitchen sink approach. And it seems to me that within the administration, the Biden administration, uh, there seem to be proponents for a more incremental approach. Mm -hmm. Sure. And then outside of that, you have uh, the people who uh, are running uh, or may end up running um, for president in the 2024 election. I'm thinking of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis uh, and his words about how the war in Ukraine is a quote-unquote territorial dispute and that America would be much better off focusing on China than Eastern Europe. When you hear those other, those counters to what you're suggesting, how do you come back? What are the things that those other groups need to hear? Yeah, first I want to say, I think there are elements, as always, of good sense in both of those arguments. But let me address both and tell you why I disagree. With the Biden administration, they have been 
extremely incremental. And I understand that. And believe me, I've spoken personally to Tony Blinken and Jake Sullivan. I had an opportunity to provide some thoughts to the president. They have taken a very measured approach. And that makes a lot of sense when you look at two nuclear arsenals, um, a big alliance, NATO, with a big, dangerous NATO, Russia. So I get those arguments. They made a lot more sense to me a year ago, 10 months ago, eight months ago. That's before war crimes in Bucha. That's before uh, Putin's clear unwillingness to back down in any single way. No desire that I can see on the part of the Russian Federation to negotiate in this, quite the opposite. So I think the argument for incrementalism, which was fairly strong at the start of this conflict, is now far less so. And if you take nuclear weapons off the table, which, as I just explained, I would, then Putin doesn't really have much he can do additionally beyond what he's done already. So why not give the Ukrainians the tools they need to really go at this? So that would be how I'd categorize this. And I've done so to administration officials. And I'll point out that as the incrementalism has gone on and on, they have done many things that they never would have done at the start. Most recently, tanks, Abrams tanks, um, but everything we've talked about, uh, the HIMARS, the, even the Javelins and the Stinger missiles were at one time controversial. So my second point would be, look, we know where we're going. We're just having a debate about how quickly to get there. I think it's time to get there. So that's how I'd categorize things to the administration. On the other side, talking to, I think, sensible Americans who say, you know, we have needs here. We have billions and billions of dollars in needs in our schools, in our infrastructure, our reconstruction following a horrific train accident. Um, there's a lot of uses for U.S. government resources. Why should we be putting 30, pushing $40 billion into Ukraine? And here I would say, look, I get that, but let's, let's kind of do the numbers. Let's do the cost benefit here. Let's say for sake of argument, we are giving 30 billion or so, mostly military. And our European colleagues, by the way, are giving about 30 billion or so. Most mm -hmm. of their monies are going into humanitarian aid. So, so let's just say for sake of argument, there's a $60 billion annual bill here. It's going to be divided between the U.S. and the European Union. Japan's going to chip in, South Korea. All of the countries I just mentioned constitute 65% of the world's GDP. Can we afford $60 billion if we want to? Yes. The U.S. defense budget alone is $860 billion. The European defense budget collectively is about $300 billion. It's the second largest in the world, by the way, larger than China's budget. So we have the capacity to do this. And that brings us to, should we do this? Is it the right thing to do? I think it is for three reasons. Number one, what we see emanating from Moscow is evil. 
it is an attack, an unwarranted attack on a much weaker, at least at the beginning, neighbor replete with war crimes, forced displacement of children, documented rape rooms, torture. It's evil. We should stand when we see evil. Number two, geopolitically, what we should have learned from the 20th century is unchecked. These kind of monsters will continue to move out. We saw that in the 20th century. Now is the time to be stopping Vladimir Putin. You do not, you must not allow a bully to move on unchecked. And then number three, and I think equally of importance, the world writ large. We should not allow this idea that big, powerful countries can simply do what they want. The old philosophy of the, the powerful do what they will, the weak suffer what they must. That goes back to the ancient Greeks, by the way, Thucydides. And I think for all those reasons, when I couple that with the capacity, this is not a trillion dollar a year bill. It's not a $500 billion a year bill. It's about a $60 billion a year bill. And by the way, the reconstruction, uh, that can be some of that, I think, quite easily can be conducted using Russian assets that Putin foolishly allowed to be parked in Western institutions. Apologize mm. for the length of the answer, but I think no. that really is the, the gut question today. Yeah, I agree. And, uh, you know, one of the things we enjoy doing here at FP Live is is, is going into some depth. So so thank you for <laughs> that. Um, sure. I want to jump to the forthcoming spring offensive that that we think is coming soon on Ukraine's part. And I want to now channel some of the questions from our subscribers. Uh, many of them have written in with thoughts and questions they want to address. Philip Deal, Tristan Simon, uh, they want to ask if Kiev can drive south to the coast to cut off the land bridge to Crimea. Is it realistic that Ukraine will regain all of its territory, save Crimea as part of a negotiated end to the war? There are lots of other questions, but just to summarize them more broadly, what do you think Ukraine can and should be looking to accomplish in the next couple of months? Yeah, first, we ought to point out before we get to the Ukrainian side of the spring offensive, uh, Putin for a period of time was going to have a fall offensive a winter offensive, and I imagine we're going to hear about a Russian spring offensive. So far, it's been a complete bust. His forces have been unable to accomplish even the modest tasks he's put in front of them. For example, uh, finally taking the city of Bakhmut, which, by the way, is the 60th largest city in Ukraine. It's like Henderson, Nevada in the United States, hardly a strategic hub. And so despite throwing everything in their kitchen sink at Bakhmut, they've been unable to take it. They might eventually get it, or the more likely the Ukrainians will do a strategic withdrawal, having again broken significant parts of the Russian armed forces. So worth pointing out before we get to the Ukrainian spring offensive, mm -hmm. the lack of offensive capability, despite many promises from Putin. Over on our side, if you will, of this firing line, I think the Ukrainians would be very smart to do exactly what your first questioner articulated, who 
himself or herself may have some military background. I would concentrate forces. I would drive to the sea, drive to the Black Sea and split the Russians. By doing that militarily, you open up both of their flanks. You come behind their lines that they are tenuously trying to hold. Secondly, you complicate enormously their logistics, trying to now get logistics into the southern part and specifically into Crimea. And thirdly, huge morale victory. This would drive right through the city of Mariupol, which was, you know, the Alamo, if you will, where the Ukrainians held off for weeks and weeks and weeks. The Russians finally took it, one of the few places they were ultimately successful. To take that back and to get to the sea, that would be a very smart move. I think that's what the Ukrainians are signaling right now. Now, let me make a point. Very often in this war, I've seen the Ukrainian high command signal that we're going to do X, and then they do Y. They do something um, completely different. And in this case, they might hold the Russian forces. They're doing that very effectively. The Russians are now digging slit trenches to defend Crimea. Their forces are, are going to be pinned down. That gives the Ukrainians opportunities to the north not all the way to the north in Ukraine, to the north of the current line that goes up to the Donbass. So another plan entirely would be to conduct a feint in the center, spin to the north and drive south and do it that way. Anyway, the point being in the Pentagon of Ukraine, all of these options are being discussed. If it were Admiral Stavridis coming up with a plan, you know, an admiral, I can't resist driving to the sea. It just got a nice ring to it. And I think that's probably where they go. And I think they'll be pretty successful. I don't think they're going to retake Crimea. Um, the Russians will fight very hard to hang on to that. It's, it's at the very heart of uh, Vladimir Putin's view of this conflict. It's, in his view, even different, even more sacred to Russia than the rest of Ukraine. So I think ultimately, I'll close with this, Ravi. Um, I think that when we do get to a negotiation, and we will, wars end almost always with negotiation, not with unconditional surrenders, um, there'll be a negotiation here. My guess is that Crimea may end up remaining in the hands of the Russians. We don't know yet. What's our job in the West? Our job is to give the Ukrainians all the tools they need so they can be in the best position when that negotiation comes. And you're listening to Foreign Policy Live. Remember, you can watch these conversations live and on video on our website, foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers get to send us questions in advance, so sign up. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. Do you think that the United States or NATO as an alliance in all of these discussions, should it be defining what constitutes a victory for Ukraine? Or is that just Ukraine's role to play here? I think at a public level, this is for the Ukrainians to define. However, I think that we can be responsible allies and partners not in a public venue, but quietly 
behind closed doors, we could be saying to the Ukrainians, here's some ways in which we're thinking about this. Here's the intelligence we're observing. This is our estimate of Putin's next move. Um, these are the kind of signals intelligence we're getting. I think it's entirely appropriate for allies to have those kind of conversations behind closed doors. And that's where you can touch on how long support will continue and some of the domestic political challenges in the West, all of which are germane. That should not be a big public conversation. Publicly, we ought to continue as we have correctly to repose enormous confidence in our Ukrainian interlocutors. Privately, quietly, we ought to be providing them our best advice and we'll see where the whole situation lands. Mm. We don't have too much time left, and I do want to ask you a question about China and Taiwan. But before I do, given your experience uh, in the army, but also you're a student of history, I you brought up the the issue of the will uh, to fight and morale. How much does that matter? So as we look at the next few months of the war, how much of a factor is that, do you think? in the way the spring offensive or other battles might play out in the coming months. There's a saying, a maxim for this in the military, which is quite simple. It, we often say that the moral is to the material as three is to one, meaning that um, it's a three plus kind of up check when you believe in your cause when you know you are doing the right thing. And I'd invite anybody listening to compare that firing line. On one side of it are Ukrainian soldiers. When they turn their heads and they look behind them, what do they see? They see their spouses, their children, their parents, their cities, their language, their civilization. They are fighting for everything. Picture yourself in that moment. Now go to the other side of the firing line. What does that Russian conscript see when he turns his head and looks behind him? He sees a rotten chain of command that has failed him. He sees terrible logistics because he's not getting good food, ammunition, warmth in the middle of the winter. And in the distance, he sees Vladimir Putin, a dictator and a war criminal, and maybe he is not smart enough to see that third thing yet. But I assure you, over time, he is looking over his shoulder and thinking, how the hell do I get out of here? And how do I get back home in one piece? That's very different than the thinking on the other side of that firing line. That's why I wouldn't bet against the Ukrainians. So... Let's go to China. Um, sure. You know, the flip side of part of your point of America going all in or throwing the kitchen sink at at helping Ukraine is what it means for preparedness in other parts of the world and how America engages with other parts of the world. Of course, acknowledging that this isn't a zero-sum game and you can do two things at once. But given everything that's been going on over the last few weeks, there's a spate of diplomacy going on in Beijing. Uh, Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen uh, is in the U.S. this week. She just met House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. 
how do you, as of this moment, game out where things stand in terms of China's intentions towards Taiwan, the likelihood that it might want to make a move on Taiwan, and then how prepared America is for thinking through those challenges? Mm -hmm. uh, first and foremost, always in a situation like this, I would say, put yourself in your opponent's shoes and try and consider how events are unfolding through his or her eyes. And so if we zorch out to Beijing and we say, okay, I'm going to be President Xi and I'm watching this debacle unfold in Ukraine, debacle for Vladimir Putin. And I'm remembering, by the way, just over a year ago at the Olympics, Putin promised me Kiev will fall in a week and effectively said, I'll have that clown Zelensky's head on a pike. Well, it hasn't worked out that way. So number one, if you're President Xi, you're pretty frustrated at what you were told and what is actually happening. And number two, if you're President Xi, you're saying to yourself, I wonder if my generals are as bad as those Russian generals. And that is a not an academic question. China has not been in a major war since the Korean War in the 1950s. That was 70 years ago. Xi does not know how to measure his leadership. And he is watching how badly the Russian leaders are doing. And he knows Chinese generals were trained in the same war colleges, in the same style of war. They both come out of the Soviet model. So that's point one. Point two, if you're President G, you mentioned Madam Tsai. I know her, met with her. I've met with the senior Taiwanese. If you're Xi, you're asking yourself, I wonder if those Taiwanese will fight like hell the way the Ukrainians have. You don't know the answer to that question. I've asked it of many Taiwanese and you get a variety of answers. My own assessment is that yes, they will fight and they will fight hard and they are clever, and they've been preparing the military, the Taiwanese military has been preparing for this moment an invasion for a long time. So for Xi, it's more uncertainty. And then number three, economically, you are asking yourself, if you're President Xi, hmm, my economy, it's too big to sanction, right? Well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but could we attack that economy in a precision-guided way, go after specific niches, capabilities, supply chains, markets? Yeah, we could. And that would create even more difficulty for you if you're President Xi trying to get the Chinese economy out of the doldrums that it's been in because of their benighted COVID policy for two to three years. That's a lot of uncertainty. And Xi is, if anything, a patient, thoughtful, strategic man. This is someone who, as a teenager, saw his family fortunes plummet. He goes to a collective farm. He's literally shoveling manure in his late teens and 20s. He applies five times to rejoin the Communist Party. His family name is disgraced. He's a patient man. He's not impulsive like his friend, I put that in air quotes, Vladimir Putin. 
So when I put all that together, Ravi, I think it's unlikely China's going to make an impulsive, sudden move. I think the only counter to that would be if the Taiwanese declared independence. I think there's zero chance of that. They're very smart also. Madam Tsai, very smart. She's a go player, not a chess player. Mm-hmm. And I think over time, uh, the Taiwanese will find a way to stay out of the complete absorption into China. So uh, that's a long way of saying, I think we are going to have some tempestuous ups and downs in the U.S.-China relationship. But I think we're going to be able to work with China over time, potentially to resolve this with perhaps Xi counseling Putin with us quietly discussing matters with Zelensky. What we want to avoid here, and this is a good point to close on, we want to avoid either side deciding that it absolutely demands a maximalist solution. Mm-hmm. I think down that path, doth real danger of escalation, as in Russia-NATO escalation lie. So let's try to start moving people toward a negotiation. Let's give our Ukrainian colleagues the tools they need. Let's encourage President Xi not to do so with Putin. I think he will. I think that's our best path forward here. When does all that happen? Best case, 8, 12, 16 months from now. So we've still got a few more turns of the wheel, Ravi. And like everyone, I'll be watching events closely in the spring and see how our Ukrainian colleagues do. And we'd love to have you back on when we do that. Admiral James Tavridis, thank you so much for joining us. What a pleasure. Thanks, Ravi. Love foreign policy. See you guys later. Thanks a lot. See you soon. Pleasure to have you on. And that was Admiral James Stavridis. Next week, Larry Summers. He is one of the smartest economists in the world, and he's going to tell us whether the global economy will enter a recession this year, how to think about U.S.-China decoupling, and funding Ukraine's reconstruction with frozen Russian money. All of that and much, much more next week. Remember, if you want to watch these in video live, go to foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers can submit questions in advance and help frame these discussions. Sign up, use the code FPLIVE for a discount. You can also see who else we have coming up on the show weeks ahead of time. I'm Ravi Agrawal, FP's Editor-in-Chief. I'll see you soon. Political analyst and columnist Danielle Moody. And I'm writer Wajahat Ali. And we've come together to lead you away from the lies and out of the gaslight. This, this is, is Democracy Ish. Absolutely very excited to speak with the host of The Mary Trump Show, Mary Trump. This is the Republican Party. There's, there aren't different wings of it anymore. The entirety of the Republican Party is a white supremacist, fascist party. Brian Tyler Cohen. People are focused on the attacks on democracy. It, they understand that this extremism is leading to further attacks and further erosions of rights. We discuss the serious issues and threats that face our nation. Join us on Democracy-ish everywhere you get your podcasts.